Well, I'd like to uh, open this morning by um, asking you a question. What would you do if, you know, you were awakened in the middle of the night by a phone call, and on the other line was your son, and he tells you that he and his friends have been in an accident. They took your car out for a joyride, and they wrecked it. Everyone's okay, but your car is totaled, and he needs you to come get him. And so you jump in your car, you drive down to the accident scene, you pick up your son, and you're driving home. And on the way home, your son breaks down and just starts weeping, and he says, Dad, I want you to know this was not an accident. Me and my friends had been drinking, and I myself was plastered when I slid behind the wheel. And this was not an accident at all. This was my fault. And we took your car out for a joyride after we'd been drinking. Now, how would you respond to your son if he told you that? Would you ground him for a year, 10 years, you know, 50 years? The man in the iron mask, you know, lock him up in a dungeon? I mean, what would you do? Would you spank him? Would there be, like, severe consequences? Take his license away forever until Jesus comes back? How would you deal with the situation? And the reason I ask that question is because this actually happened to a real person. A little boy, actually a 16-year-old boy, named Rod Rosenblatt. This actually happened to him. He and his buddies had actually, they, they drank a bunch, they, they got into Rod's dad's car, and they actually, they totaled the car. And when Rod called his father that night, he said, I was terrified. I had no idea what my dad was going to do. I thought I was going to get hammered and, and lectured. And he calls his dad, and the very first words out of his dad's mouth were, are you okay? And he said, yeah. He said, however, dad, he said, me and my buddies were drinking. And what his father said next blew him away. His dad said this. His dad said, how about tomorrow we go get you a new car? I'll meet you at the car dealership on my lunch break tomorrow. Let's close in prayer, right? <laughs> I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, this kind of behavior from his dad probably turned Rod into an alcoholic, a career criminal. This amount of permissiveness probably actually ruined Rod Rosenblatt. But here's what happened. Rod said that is the moment he became a Christian. And Rod had grown up going to church, been in Sunday school, youth group. He said church was always boring to him. He never got it, never saw what the big deal was. But he said this. He said, quote, The night I totaled my dad's car and my father showed me grace and mercy, in that moment the grace of God became real to me. Now I realize this sounds nuts to us. Sounds nuts. I have three boys. This sounds crazy to me, okay? Because there ain't no way I'm going to handle it that way. I mean, this is the Bible Belt, right? I mean, actually, this is the zipper of the Bible Belt, okay? We're a little bit further south, but th this is where morality reigns. And so we think about a story like this, and we think this is nuts, because if people are going to change, they need to learn from their mistakes. There needs to be consequences. There needs to be accountability, you got to hold people's feet to the fire if they're going to change. And you have to punish them. And that is why this testimony from Rod Rosenblatt sounds so crazy to us. It sounds so counterintuitive. Because we hear this and we think to ourselves, his dad was just enabling him to continue to live a lifestyle that was reckless and foolish. And that is why whenever Rod shares his testimony with people... He says people always give him a hard time, and, and, and they object. And they're like, what about accountability? Your dad was enabling you. And Rob says this. Rod says, listen, 
Don't you understand? That was the lowest point of my entire life up to that moment. I felt horrible, he said. I was scared. I felt terrible about what I had done. And he said this, I was ashamed and my father spoke grace to me at a time where I knew I deserved wrath. And in that moment, Rod says, I came alive. That's the moment the grace of God became real to me. Because Rod's father showed him grace in the face of deserved judgment. And listen, that's the only time you can show grace is when judgment is deserved. Otherwise, it's not grace. People think that God was gracious creating Adam and Eve. That's not grace. They were perfect. No grace needed there. That was a thank you. Appreciate that. I'm a human now, right? Created out of dust. But that's not grace. Grace can only exist when there's deserved judgment. That's the only time grace can be extended. And the grace and mercy that Rod received is actually the very thing that converted him and made him into a Christian. And rather than making him become a drunk, that grace actually turned Rod Rosenblatt into, in my opinion, the greatest Lutheran theologian of our day. That's who Rod Rosenblatt is now. He's in his 70s. He teaches at a seminary out in California. He has spent his life teaching people about the grace and the love of God. And that was the moment his life changed. That was the moment church went from boring to, this is pretty stinking cool. <laughs> that God loves us so much and shows grace to us in the face of our sin. Rod's testimony reminds us that people don't change the way that we think they do. We think they change through rules, through law, through lecturing. But people never change by being hammered over their sin. You know, I, I've been a pastor over six years I've heard a lot of testimonies. I have never heard a testimony that, that went like this. You know when things turned around for me? It was when I wrecked and totaled my dad's car, and then he cut off all communication and kicked me out of the house. That was when I really turned things around and really started living for God. I've never heard that in my life. Never heard it. Doesn't exist. In fact, if you meet someone like that, they will probably be so legalistic and harsh and rigid, you're going to want to run in the opposite direction. No, I've never heard that testimony because that's not grace. The way people change is not by being told what to do. The way people change is by being told what to do, doing the exact opposite, crashing and burning. Their whole entire life becomes a dumpster fire, and then they show up at your doorstep on 3 a.m. broken and humbled over their sin. And rather than hearing, uh, I told you so, and the door being slammed, rather than that, they experience love and grace and forgiveness and acceptance. That's how people change. By defiantly disobeying what you told them to do. And then when they come back broken, you say, like the prodigal son's dad in Luke 15, I receive you and I accept you. That's how people change. It's not the way that we think. And that's why our text this morning is so important. It's so important. Because Jesus takes our preconceived notions about how people change and he actually flips them on their head. Turns them upside down and shakes them out. Because in our text this morning, Jesus is teaching us that people change through being shown grace and patience and being passive with people. Not the way that we think normally. That is what Jesus is teaching us this morning. And we're in the midst of a series called The Upside Down Kingdom. If uh, this is your first Sunday here at Grace Life, we are preaching through the Gospel of Mark. And this current series in Mark 4 is called The Upside Down Kingdom because Jesus came to earth and taught us about his heavenly kingdom, and it's absolutely contrary to everything that we think about when it comes to an earthly kingdom. The kingdom Jesus spoke about, it not only defies our logic, it actually offends us. It's scandalous. 
It's an offensive kingdom. And in our text this morning, Jesus teaches us the kingdom of God expands and grows in ways that are absolutely contrary to the way that we think the kingdom of God grows. In fact, look at verse 26. This is amazing. Jesus says this. He says, the kingdom of God is like a farmer who goes out and he sows seed in his field. Okay, you got this guy. He's a farmer. He goes out. He's got a bunch of seed in his hand. He starts scattering it, right, onto the soil. And then it says, the farmer, dun, 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 does nothing. Look at it. He doesn't do a stinking thing. He doesn't fertilize the seed. Doesn't dig trenches and irrigate the seed. There's like seemingly no proactivity here at all. He, he scatters the seed, and then that's it. There is no connection whatsoever between the growth of the seed and the farmer. All he does is throw it out there, and then it grows. In fact, verse 27 says, the guy basically sows the seed and doesn't even know how it grows. Look at verse 27. It says, night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. You know, I love that thought. Listen, the farmer can do this. He can get up early and fret about the seed, or he can sleep in and play Xbox all day long, like, you know, But either way, the seed's going to grow. And the farmer himself, not only does he not help it grow, he doesn't even know how it grows. He has no idea. That's why verse 28 says, the seed grows all by itself. In the Greek, that's automata, literally automatically. The seed has the power in itself to grow and produce its own fruit. And so therefore, the farmer is responsible for one thing, just one thing. Sow the seed and then wait patiently for the harvest. That's it. That's all he does. And the main lesson that Jesus is teaching us here is that the kingdom of God expands through patience and passivity. And the main way that we, the church, the kingdom of God on earth, the main way the kingdom of God expands and people join the kingdom is by giving people the gospel and then backing off, giving them space to work it out. That's what Jesus is saying here. And we really need to get this, guys, because here's the deal. This truth has huge implications for our evangelism, for the way that we treat our spouse, for the way that we parent, the way we treat our friends, the way we treat our employees. This has massive implications because Jesus is saying people don't change the way you think they do. Putting a lot of pressure on someone is actually going to backfire. And so with that in mind, I have two main points of application this morning from our text, okay? Two ways we should show patience and uh, extend the gospel to others and wait. Okay, first of all, we're called to patiently extend the gospel to unbelievers. This whole context here, Jesus keeps speaking about evangelism, okay? And so first of all, we're called to patiently extend the gospel to unbelievers. And secondly, we got to also patiently extend the gospel to believers and wait for God to produce the harvest, okay? That's where we're going this morning. First of all, we're called to patiently extend the gospel to unbelievers, right? That means we're called to draw close to sinners... Hold the gospel out and then be patient for God to change them. You know, we don't lecture people into the kingdom of God. We don't picket people into the kingdom of God. We don't argue people into the kingdom of God. We love people into the kingdom of God through our patience and through continually holding out the hope of forgiveness and mercy from God. That's how people change. That's how we impact the world. And just to put this in shoe leather, okay, if my next door neighbor owns a strip club, and he has no desire at all to live for God, 
And we, you know, we hang out from time to time. You know, we, we have barbecues together. We play tennis together, whatever it is. My job is to love him and be kind to him and hold the gospel out to him and be patient with him. My job is not to hammer him about being a pornographer every time I see him or to drop hints about him being a pornographer every time I see him. That's not my job. I mean, he's not a Christian yet. What do I expect from him? To act like a Christian? To have Christian values? He's not a Christian yet. I am called to be patient and to hold the gospel out to him. Now, I realize this scares people because here's how people reason. They think this. If I have a long-term relationship with someone that's a well-known sinner, that means I automatically approve of all of their lifestyle. That's what we think. We think unless we hammer people and keep bringing up their sin over and over and over and over again, that somehow we're compromising or not doing our duty. Listen, that is a misconception. Just because you accept someone as they are doesn't mean you approve of where they are. I'm going to say that again. Acceptance does not mean approval. Just because you accept someone where they are doesn't mean you approve of where they are, right? Jesus modeled this over and over again. You read through the Gospels. In John chapter 4, Jesus meets this Samaritan woman at the well getting the water, remember? She's been married five times. Now she's living with a guy. They're not married. Jesus accepts and loves her right where she's at without approving of her sinful lifestyle. Perfect balance there. He did the same thing with the woman caught in adultery. Remember this? The Pharisees bring this woman, throw her before Jesus' feet. He protects her. He defends her dignity. He chases those guys off. But at the same time, he says to her, go and sin no more. He accepted her, but he didn't say, I approve of everything you're doing. No. Perfect balance there. He did the same thing again with Zacchaeus. He ate with Zacchaeus in Luke 19. Zacchaeus is this tax collector. He's stealing from people, his own people. Jesus says, I'm going to go eat dinner at your house. He didn't say, I approve of you stealing from your countrymen. He didn't say that at all. He didn't say, Zacchaeus, make restitution with all the people you've stolen from, and then we can hang out. Jesus instead said, I'm going to go to your house and eat with you. And listen, that's the way that Jesus treated people. He freely accepted sinners as they were. He was a friend of sinners before he was their savior, which is amazing. He didn't go up to people and say, listen, hey, man, you got to sell the strip club if we're going to play tennis once a week. Because otherwise, we can't be friends. We can't be close, you know? What are my buddies at church going to think if I'm playing tennis every week with a guy that owns a strip club? Jesus didn't say, clean up your lifestyle, and then we can hang out. No, Jesus was a friend of sinners before he was their Savior. When you read through the Gospels, and listen, Jesus met people where they were, and he loved them before they changed. In fact, he loved them into changing because that's how the gospel works. And Jesus expects us to model that same love to the world because, guys, believe it or not, sanctification happens after salvation. People change after they become Christians because, listen, you can't even change until you're a Christian because you don't have the Holy Spirit yet. How can you change without the power of the Holy Spirit? How can you put your sin to death unless you have God's Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you? And so people change after they're Christians, not before. And the worst thing we could do is to hammer people with morality and then have them change and sell their strip club and now think, well, God approves of me because I don't own a strip club anymore. Now I'm right with God because I did my duty. That's the worst thing we could do to them. Our job is to hold the gospel out, and I know this is crazy. This sounds crazy, I know. But our job is to patiently hold the gospel out and wait for God to bring the harvest. That's our job. In fact, practically, the church should be a place where people feel like they belong before they believe. 
We should strive to cultivate an environment here where where non-Christians can come in here and feel safe to hear the gospel preached, to not feel judged. They should be able to come in here and say, this feels like home long before they say, Jesus is my Savior. The church should be a place where people feel like they belong before they believe. That's the way that Jesus treated people. It's possible to be holy and not be a jerk about it. It's totally possible, okay? Jesus did it. In fact, if you're being a jerk, you're not as holy as you think you are. Because Jesus befriended sinners and met them where they were. And that's why Jesus said evangelism is like fishing for men. It's like fishing for men. And if you fish, you know when you hook a fish, you've got to let it run for a little bit, especially tarpon. Because if you jack that sucker back and you start pulling and putting all this weight on them, guess what happens? Your line's going to break. And you've got to give people space. You've got to hold the gospel out. You can't tell them every time they come to church if they're sleeping with their girlfriend, hey, dude, you've got to cut that out. Hey, man, that displeases God. Listen, he's an unbeliever. Let him get saved and the Holy Spirit starts bouncing around inside of him and he's going to change some things. I guarantee it'll happen. I guarantee it. Let him come and hear the gospel. But we are so quick to hammer people. We want to fix people so fast that we don't patiently hold out the gospel and trust the seed to do its work. You've got to trust the seed to do its work. You have to. That's what Jesus is calling us to do. And so our motto here at Grace Life, Tommy and I, we seek that that Grace Life would be a place. Very next slide, please, Deemer. Thanks, buddy. That, That we could say this. This is our motto here at Grace Life. Gospel plus safety, plus time, equals transformation. Gospel, you give them the gospel, you give them space, and you give them time to work out everything they're hearing. Let them see what the Christian life looks like before they sign on the dotted line. If you pressure someone in to to somehow changing their life, and they're not ready yet, reality's going to hit pretty fast. Let them work it out. Let them see how we live as Christians. And so rather than pressuring them into making some kind of like decision or choice, patiently hold out the gospel and show them love and acceptance and then wait for the harvest. That's what Jesus is saying. And so we are called to patiently hold out the gospel. The church is called to patiently hold out the gospel to a lost and dying world and wait for the harvest to come. And listen, this takes great faith on our end. We're actually going to have to trust the Holy Spirit. We're going to have to trust the gospel in God himself, to bring the harvest because this goes directly against everything in us that wants to fix and change and pressure people into conversion immediately. And and listen, here's the deal. That only backfires. The law always produces its opposite. Always. Romans 2.4 says that this. It says, it's the long-suffering and the patience and the kindness of God That is actually what transforms people. It leads them to repentance. It's God's patience that makes people rethink their life, the love they receive, despite their sin, the grace they receive, despite their sin. That's when they say, you know what? My whole life has been a lie. My whole life has been going in the wrong direction. And they turn back like the prodigal son in Luke 15, and they go home where they know they're always loved and accepted. They'll never be turned away. They'll never have the door slammed in their face. That is how people change. And if that is the heart of God, if Romans 2.4 is the heart of God, the church ought to model that to unbelievers. And so that's my first point. We're called to patiently extend the gospel, be long-suffering with the gospel, hold it out to unbelievers. That's my first takeaway. Secondly, 
And this one's going to hurt a little bit, okay? We are called to patiently extend the gospel also to believers. Now, if if the first point seemed counterintuitive, this one's going to blow your mind because, listen, Jesus said in Matthew 18 that we are called to extend grace to people infinitely. We are called to extend grace to people infinitely. There's no limit to the amount of grace we're called to extend to other believers in the body of Christ. In fact, Peter came up to Jesus in Matthew 18. He said this. Peter said, Lord, how often will I forgive my brother when he sins against me? As many as seven times? You know, Peter had heard Jesus preach about grace and mercy. He, he saw Jesus model grace and mercy, and he said to himself, you know, this is pr- pretty revolutionary. But how many times am I supposed to forgive my brother in Christ when he sins against me? You know, if he gossips about me seven times, on the eighth time, do I retaliate? You know, where, where do I draw the line, Jesus? And, and I know Peter, Peter gets a bad rap because we think Peter is this really hot-headed guy and, you know, he doesn't have much grace in him. Listen, this is revolutionary for even P- Peter to consider because do you know how many times in the Old Testament we're commanded to forgive people? Zero. The Old Testament law said an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. The Old Testament law said tit for tat. The Old Testament law said, hey, listen, if they gossip about you, go on Facebook and flame that bro. Light him up, man. Tag all his friends. Tag his grandma. You know, his mamaw, papa. It's a South here, right? Tag them all, you know? That's how it is. There's no wiggle room or grace with the law at all. And so, listen, Peter's saying seven times, and then I retaliate. That was gracious. And Jesus said this. He said, I don't say seven times. Listen to this. This will blow you away. Jesus said 70 times seven. And if you have a graphing calculator out, Jesus ain't talking about 490, okay? He's talking about infinity. Infinity. You are called to extend grace to other believers and forgive and not retaliate infinitely. He's not saying there's not consequences, okay? What he's saying is this. You are called to forgive, not grow bitter, not retaliate, not get him back, infinitely. There is never a time in the life of two Christians where grace no longer applies. Never. There's never a time when grace runs out and the law kicks back in and, and you know, God says, okay, that was the final time. Now you can regulate on that fool. Okay? That's never going to happen. Jesus said, you are called to forgive infinitely. And this was revolutionary. I mean, when you consider the Old Testament law saying an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, get them back, whatever they did to you, do it worse, forward that email to the whole workplace, whatever it is, this was revolutionary for Peter to even consider seven times. Jesus says, you're to forgive infinitely. And I know there's a part of us that says, this is totally unbalanced. Where's accountability here? What about balance? That's what we think. We, so often we hear things like this and we think to ourselves, we're supposed to be balanced in the church. And I, and I say this, says who? Jesus didn't say anything here about balance at all. He said, you're called to forgive infinitely. He didn't say, you know, forgive 50 times and the 51st time grace runs out. He says, you are called to forgive without any qualifications whatsoever. And so there is no balance here. Grace is actually imbalanced. I don't know who started the rumor that grace was balanced or grace was supposed to be balanced. Grace is not balanced. Grace is extravagant, incomprehensible, favor and love coming at you that has nothing to do with you. That's grace. You didn't earn grace, bro. Jesus paid it all. You didn't leave a tip even. You didn't leave nothing. You said thank you, and you left. 
Grace is love coming at you that has nothing to do with you. Grace is one-way love. It only comes in one direction, right at you. And so grace is totally unbalanced. But here's the thing. When people say, what about balance here? I don't, you know, what about accountability? Listen, grace is totally unbalanced. The law, the law is balanced. You're probably getting it confused with the law because the law is balanced, okay? The law has stipulations, qualifications, contingencies. The law has limitations, conditions, guidelines. The law has all that. Grace doesn't have any of that. Grace is imbalanced. Grace swallows whole the law when it comes to the way we treat other people. And so we are called to extend infinitely grace to others in the body of Christ. And we're not called to mix it or you know, somehow turn it up and, and balance it out with the law. In fact, Paul says in Romans chapter 11 that if you try to take the gospel and grace and mix it with law, guess what? It ends up actually destroying grace. If you hear this and you think, man, that's, just, that's too overboard, dude. Forgiving infinitely? Nah, there's no way it's going to work. i got to mix that with some law. Listen, the moment you mix it, With limitations, contingencies, accountability, you destroy grace. It ceases to be grace. And so we are called to patiently hold that gospel out to other believers. And again, wait for God to bring the harvest. That's our job. And our hearts are so legalistic that we are bent, we are hell-bent on using the law to change people. I mean, I'm in the gospel pretty much most of every single week of my life because I teach and I preach. And listen, my default mode is still trying to use the law to change people in my family. You know, my wife and I were having a a discussion recently and uh, it it got a little bit heated. Okay, we're sinners, saved by the grace, you know, under the blood, but it got a little heated. And my wife, she was in a funk, to be quite frank, you know. She was in a funk that day and I was very sensitive. And so I wasn't being treated the way I thought I should be treated. So I said this. I said, honey, if this is the way you're going to act today, then I'm going to need to get out of here. I'm going to need to get in the car and go for a drive or something or go for a jog because I, I, just, I, I'm not, I don't want to be around here if this is the way you're going to be. Now, listen, my wife and I have such a gospel-centered relationship. I, it's just awesome. My wife gets raw on me, and she's like, Jeff, she's like, quit using the law to try to change me. <laughs> True. She nailed me, dude. Because what was I trying to do? If you don't act the way I want you to act, I'm going to punish you by my absence, which may not be much of a punishment. I don't know. You can debate that, you know? But I was trying to use the law and the consequences of the law to change my wife. So fear of what I'm going to do in retaliation against you should be the motivation to change you, which always backfires. Always. In your marriage, and your parenting. You know, the reason your kids grow up and turn 18 and move to Alaska Careful, I know. But here's the real deal. Oh, you're from Alaska. Never mind. <laughs> Listen, the Blairs are gospel-centered, okay? Their kids moved to Alaska because it's beautiful. But some of your kids, they moved to Cambodia, okay? Listen, because they've had the law in retaliation held out to them as the motivation for change their entire lives. Because as Proverbs 22 says, it's better to live in a desert or on the rooftop than in the home of a contentious wife. You could put in parent. You could put in dad. You could put in whatever it is. Because in that person's mind, they reason, you know what? It's better to live on the roof or out in the desert than it is to live in this house because all I ever experience is law. That's all I ever get. I'm guilted into everything. I can't do anything right, apparently. And they reason in their mind, according to Proverbs 22, it's better just to move out to the desert, to get as far away from this as possible because the law always provokes its opposite. It feels right to us. It feels right to hammer people. But guess what? 
Anytime the law is introduced, it fractures that relationship. I don't care what level it is, if it's employment, if it's the church, if it's your house, it fractures it. I got stone cold on my wife. I was trying to hold out the law for her to change, and she said, that's the law. Nailed me, and I repented, sort of. My repentance comes in stages usually, okay? But because because I said this, I came back and I said, honey, you're right, I'm sorry. Even if you're like this the whole day, God will give me the power through the Holy Spirit to endure it, you know? <laughs> got a little gospel-centered, you know, Holy Spirit action going there, you know, a little Jesus juice. And I tried to use that as the blessing on the relationship. And, and then she said, still law, which she was right again. And so that finally time, I finally repented, and I said, listen, honey, I'm sorry. I was wrong. There was no contingencies. There was no added Holy Spirit comments or anything like that at all. There was, you're right, I'm wrong. Will you forgive me? Because I was not showing her grace. She was not at her best, but I was not at my best either. I was not treating her. I was not holding the gospel out patiently. This is the way that I, that I treat my spouse. I treat my kids the same way. That's my default mode to parent with the law. You know, I took my kids to Disney a few months ago, took them on YouTube, I'm showing them all the videos of Mickey and the fireworks, they get all excited, and then I found myself using Disney as the motivation for every act of obedience in their entire lives. Yeah, yeah, it was totally disgusting to myself later on when I thought back about it, but I did. I'm like, you know, you better brush your teeth or you're not going to Disney, you know? Yeah, you better eat all those green beans or Mickey's an illusion, you know? I was like, I got crazy with it, I did. And my wife, listen... You should be in her home. It's just, I love it because it's so gospel-centered. She said, honey, why are you using the law to try to change our kids? Why are, that's not gospel-centered parenting, okay? Gospel-centered parenting is this. If you don't eat and if you don't clean up this room or you don't obey me, you're going to get paddled. But no matter what you do, you're going to Disney, okay? Because I'm a gracious and loving dad. That's the gospel. Because the gospel is this. You may get chastened on the way to heaven, but you're going, okay, because of Christ and Christ alone. That is the gospel. But we do this carrot and stick theology, you know? And it's, you better obey, or Walt Disney's kingdom is an illusion, you know? It's like, we have all this stuff, and we treat our kids this way, and we use the law to try to change them. And we wonder why they grew up and be Pharisees. We wonder. It confuses us. What happened? I enforced the law so rigorously. Exactly, cowboy. Great job. And now I'm trying to track them down and bring them back. You have to hold the gospel out to people until they change. But our default mode is to use the law. That's my default mode. I own that. I ask God, Lauren and I do, to give us grace, to show us how to show grace to our kids. It is so trying. I had one of those weeks, I'm making this sermon, and God's like, get ready to preach this. I'm going to give you a week. It was an EGN week, you know, extra grace needed. It was one of those weeks, okay, where I take my kids to Chick-fil-A, and they have a freaking meltdown, okay? It was crazy. And God is showing me, listen, your default mode, no matter how pious you think you are, is to use the law to change people. That's my heart, and I need to repent of that and own that because that is in our default nature, is to use the law to change people. And Jesus said this. He said, we're called to hold out the gospel to both unbelievers and believers and wait for the harvest. That's our calling. And listen, if we could wrap our minds around this concept, it would, it would absolutely revolutionize this, this city. It would revolutionize our homes, this church, this city, if we could somehow grasp this patience, this gospel-centered patience, holding the gospel out patiently and waiting for God to bring the harvest, this would, this would revolutionize our entire city. In fact, just to give you a taste, okay, just to give you a taste of what could happen, I, I want to tell you about a city named Giel. It's in Belgium, okay? I'm just curious. How many of you have heard of Giel 
in Belgium before, in the country of Belgium? Just raise your hand. I'm just curious. Anyone at all? This was amazing to me. Um, the city of Giel uh, has been the subject of many books. It's been the subject of many news articles and news stories because for over 700 years, 700 years, they have had incredible success in helping people with mental illness. People with psychiatric disorders have gone to Giel for 700 years. And so if you've got schizophrenia or split personality disorder, people actually go there and they are greatly helped. And it's a fascinating city because, listen, the thing that makes Giel so successful in helping people with psychiatric disorders is this. The citizens of Giel actually accept these people into their homes and they live with them. They don't travel there and then go to a hospital on the outskirts of town where they're cordoned off, you know, with barbed wire, okay? They actually, the residents of Giel actually welcome these people into their own homes and they board them. In fact, the people are not called patients, they're not called mentally ill, they're called either guests or they're called boarders, people that are boarding. And listen, the average family in Giel will host boarders for 29 years, the average family will. Total strangers coming in and living with you. Now listen to this. These mentally ill people, they go there, and, and they live with these folks, and, and they can come and go as they please. Any symptoms they manifest at all, they're not confronted, they're not talked about. People all over the city of Giel, they talk to themselves, they get in arguments with themselves. Nobody says a word. Everyone accepts it and embraces the people just as they are. And it has a tremendous ability to transform these people. It's amazing. Because the power behind the city of Giel is unconditional acceptance. They're patient beyond measure. In fact, psychiatrists have traveled to Giel and they've studied the city. And what blows them away is that the method for treating people with mental illness is no method at all. There's no, there's no programs or techniques. There's no counseling tables. All they do is they go there and they start living with a host family and they walk around the city and they shop and they work and listen... The distinction between a border and a non-border is blurred, so much so that most of the mental illness problems seem to just vanish and go away. I know, mic drop, just, I'm done, you know? Because it's amazing. It's the power of acceptance that cures and helps these people overcome mental illness. And it's the patience, the long-suffering nature of these citizens for 700 years that have helped transform the lives of these psychiatric patients, you know. And I was reading one NPR news article. It, bro it blew me away. Dude. It, it totally, it, mine equals blown. It blew me away because this host mother w was uh, boarding this uh, probably 50-year-old dude. 50-year-old man was struggling with, like, schizophrenia or whatever. And, and this guy, every single day, this man would in his 50s, he would take all the buttons on a shirt and he would twist them off. Each one. Boop until they popped off. And then he'd come home at the end of the day with a handful of buttons and a shirt, all flailing in the wind, you know? And so every single night, this host mother would sew the buttons back on his shirt. And there was an American lady who was visiting. She was visiting Giel, and she saw this host mom doing this every night. And she said, don't you get tired of that? I mean, every single night, you're sewing these buttons back on this guy's shirt. She's like, why don't you, uh, why don't you use fishing line? Yeah, right? You know, you ain't gonna pop that thing off with fishing line. And she's... It said this, this article said, the host mother was like almost offended. And she said, you don't understand. She said, I will never use fishing line because this man needs to twist those buttons off. He has to twist those buttons off every single day because it helps him. 
And the mother, the host mother of his home understood it's the unconditional, unmerited grace and patience and favor of just welcoming in and accepting this person just as they were and not trying to change them, not viewing them as a problem that needs to be solved. That was the power and the motivation behind these people actually getting better and being healed, some of them. And so whether we we realize it or not, that lady was practicing Romans 2.4, which is the kindness and the long-suffering and just the compassion and patience of God is what leads people to repentance. And if we could somehow in the church, if a city called Gil with no Christianity, no Holy Spirit, if they can have that kind of impact on the culture, what in the world could a church do? If we could wrap our minds around stopping being so judgmental in the church, stop being so judgmental outside the church, stop our picketing and our complaining and our Facebook posts and all that stuff, get rid of that, and patiently hold the gospel and the good news out, what could happen? What could stinking happen to the city? What could happen to our homes? It'd be a place of love and comfort. People, you'd have to lock the doors to keep people out of here. You'd have, to, you'd have to, to, to basically turn your lights off outside of your house because people would never stop coming over trying to talk to you because everyone wants to be loved. Everyone wants to be affirmed and loved and known. Everyone does. And so when we think about Jesus' example here of holding the gospel out with patience, that is the only hope for this world. Now, I know, it, it, we're at that point in the sermon where we're like, this is, this is crazy. This, this kind of living is crazy. Sewing buttons on shirts, you know, showing unlimited grace to jerks without growing bitter. And, you know, this is crazy. It's impossible. And I would say this, it is impossible in our own strength. It is impossible in our own strength. But we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And here's the deal. The, the only way, the only way, the only way, the only way the only way that we can begin to be patient like this is we first have to go back to the cross and remind ourselves how patient has God been towards us? That's the only way it can start because people who grow impatient with other people are people who think deep down inside God has grown impatient with with me. That's the truth. Whether you realize it or not, your view of God is constantly gushing out and spilling out onto everyone in your life all the time. All the time. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And that's why it's been said, you know, hurt people, hurt people. Abuse people, abuse people. But loved people, love people. Forgiven people, forgive. Healed people, heal. The very first thing we have to do the most important person you must hold the gospel out to patiently is yourself. That's where it all starts. Because unless you are convinced that God has not given up on you and he never will, you will never have the strength or the power or the compassion to hold the gospel out to others without getting irritated with them. That's where it starts. I watched a movie this week that illustrates this this principle beautifully. It's, It's called 33 I don't know if you've seen 33. It's with Antonio Banderas. It's about the 33 um, miners from Chile that got trapped underground in 2010. It's an amazing story. They're 2,000 feet underground in this gold mine, and uh, it collapses, and they are trapped. They cannot get out. And they only have enough food for three days. 33 miners have enough food for three days. They have limited food, limited water. And what's amazing is it took 69 days to rescue them. It's an amazing story, but here's the deal that blew me away. 
The thing that kept these guys together, the thing that kept them united and patient and kind and had them stick together was the assurance that those up above hadn't given up on them. That was the thing that kept them from killing each other. These are 33 miners, okay? With pocket knives, I mean, the thing that kept them from killing each other and fighting over the food and all hell breaking loose was the fact that they knew that those up above would not give up on them. It's an amazing movie. I can't commend it to you enough. And there's this part where right after the mine collapses, it's really dramatic because the leader of the miners, he says this. He says, there's no hope. This is the leader. There's no hope. We're all doomed. It took 100 years for them to dig the mine down this far. There's no way they're going to be able to reach us in time to save us. We only have three days worth of food. And then Antonio Banderas, you know, he steps up and he's like, no. He's like, I don't believe that. He said this. He said, you can believe whatever you want, but I believe they will dig us out. And if they don't, then our families will dig us out with their bare hands if necessary. And you know what? Antonio Banderas, his faith, his confidence actually infused these other miners and they stuck together for 69 days and rationed that food out and survived. And the thing that made all the difference was they had an unshakable confidence that the people upstairs had not given up on them and they wouldn't. And listen, friends, this is where it starts for us. We have to be convinced that God has not and will not give up on us, that God will do whatever it takes to rescue us, even dig us out with his bare hands. And listen, doesn't the cross teach us that? Doesn't the cross teach us that God will go to whatever lengths necessary to dig us out? That God would even sacrifice his own son. We look at the cross and we think God loves us more than he loves his son. Until we're convinced that God has not given up on us, we cannot extend patience this way. Because those who are are rude and cold and indifferent and impatient, behind all of that rudeness and callousness, you know what it is? It's a person who's deeply insecure and fearful. You know what? God's given up on me. He's turned his back on me. That's why the most important person to hold the gospel out to patiently as yourself, because no one's harder on us than us. It's so easy when you're living the Christian life and you're not what you should be to get down on yourself and to say, you know what, that's the millionth time I've done that. That's the millionth time I've had to go back to my wife, to my kids, and ask for their forgiveness and say, I'm sorry, I'm just a failure. It's so easy to get down on ourselves in the Christian life because, listen, we still sin daily. And that's why the most important person you need to hold the gospel out to is yourself and remind yourself, he who began a good work in you will see it through until the day of Christ Jesus. You have to go to Romans 8 and remind yourself that nothing shall ever separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing will ever, not even your sin. Amen, amen. So think about this. You know that sin in your life? You know which one I'm talking about, the besetting sin that keeps cropping up. Everyone in your family knows it. All your friends know it. That sin you keep committing over and over and over again, and you battle with it daily. You know that sin? That is a sin that Christ died for. That is the very sin that Christ died for, and he will never give up on you or become impatient. Now today, go in that power and extend patience and forgiveness to others. Let's pray.